All right, you guys ready? Buckle up. What a day. We got a few million things to check off the list. It's good. It's good. It's good. Can we just take a moment to engage with his presence? Thank you, God. Hey. You are right here with us, God. Nourish our very being. We're about to talk a lot about Jesus being living water. Hey, pour it out, God. Pour it out. Pour it out. I'm just reminded this morning as we were praying, the Lord showed me a vision of minds, brains with band-aids all over the scars and the wounds. And he's like, I see that. And he just gently was peeling off the band-aids. And I think that represents just the ways that we've been trying to cope and the, the maybe the methods of this world putting band-aids on our thinking. And he removed the band-aids and poured out his, his pure water himself over the brain and it turned to a healthy color. It was, it was rightly working, it was freed, it was in wholeness. So even today, let the, the water of Jesus pour over your thinking, your minds bring healing. He is healing oil. He is the balm of Gilead. Healing is in his name and it's his nature. And so as we engage with Jesus with his word and in truth, let him nourish and transform you. Amen? Amen. You know, um, can we welcome Kathy Martinson this morning? My parents um, moved to California about a year and a half after I did. I thought I was just going to be a loner in L.A., and uh, my brother and sister-in-law moved. They planted a church in Pasadena about six months after Evergreen. And then they planted a church um, about a year after that called Unveiled. And so uh, Friday nights in Pasadena, that's where it's happening, in their home. And uh, hey, Evergreen, if you wanted to go, we could bust through that, that home and get a building for you soon, I guess. Yeah. So you're welcome to join that. Um, but... We, we were praying about uh, what to preach on this morning. I specifically um, feel like God's been taking us on a journey by no mistake. Over the summer, if you've been with us, we went through life in the spirit in Romans chapter eight. We really went deep in Romans eight, um, what it means to, to engage with God, life in the spirit. And then he took us on a journey of intimacy with God. I mean, that is, that is the bedrock of everything in our faith, isn't it? Relationship with God himself. And then he led us kind of a, a, felt like a 180, but it felt so natural at the same time. He took us into a series on spiritual warfare. And so from a place of intimacy, that is the place that we, that we go into the land like we talked about last week and are able to fight those battles from a place of intimacy and victory. And so it all comes from life in the spirit. It all comes from intimacy. And then we engage in the land of promise, these giants in the land, these fortifications in the land from a place of being connected to the father and seeing his heart of love come forward through our lives so that no matter what we're facing, we are confident in the victorious work of the finished works of the cross and the resurrected power of Jesus in our lives. And I love just the brilliant messages that have been coming through. Joshua Mills spoke on the glory of God, all that God is and all that he has, the manifest presence of Jesus himself. And then last week, I loved, I got so many individuals that were just sharpened by last week's teaching from Charlie Brown. Yes, Charlie Brown, that's his name, like the cartoon. 
And uh, Charlie J just gave a powerful message all about moving into the land of promise, talking about Joshua and how we have to, when we're moving into the land, we got to let some things go. We got to leave some things in the wilderness, don't we? Because we're moving into our destiny. If you're going to move into your destiny, you've got to leave some things behind. And then you've got to know that the greatest promise of all, that surely I am with you wherever you go. It doesn't mean that we're not going to face different challenges, but God is with us. And so, man, I'm stirred up. I'm like, God's just taking us on the best journey here. It's so good. And I felt uh, today, as I was praying, the Lord showed me a vision of this church, and it was men and women next to these, these stallions. The stallions were ready to go. They were shiny, um, groomed stallions, and uh, they, they had packs on them ready to go, and some people started getting on and taking off, and other people got on, and they tried to take off, but there were these big anchors attached, just dragging in the dirt, and I felt like the Lord says, it's time to let go of the anchors in your life. What are the areas in your life that you've been holding on to things? You have authority. The horses represent authority. He's given it to you. But through your own choices, we have held on to anchors that keep us from living in the fullness of our destiny. And so I feel like there is a motivation of the spirit, a holy motivation of the spirit to be able to let go of the chains today to let go of the anchors that are dragging so that you can run in the fullness of your destiny. This is what we were created for. So who's ready to just move forward? Let's go. Can you imagine? Can you imagine with me for a moment? Not just 5, 10, 15 people that are moving forward with authority and speed, but a whole company of people that are like, let's go. Let's run together. Let's run together. So I, I'm hungry for that, guys. This is... Uh, the Lord spoke to me too. He said, um, I, I was wrestling through a little bit like, um, are there areas we need to be a little more seeker friendly? And I feel like he hit me across the face and said, Jesus is not seeker friendly. <laughs> Jesus is radical. Jesus is radical. And I mean, he'll take you by the hand and guide you on, but he's also the same God that will knock you off your donkey. <laughs> and I'm like, we just, we just got to model what it looks like to be radical followers of Jesus and let the Spirit of God do that, that heavy work within someone. That's free. I don't know. I thought of that today. So I was praying into what God wants to do, and I believe God wants this to be a house of greater glory, a house of greater manifest presence of Jesus. Do you know how many tears I've cried longing for people to come into the doors and just be able to encounter the radical love of the Father? Can we create that kind of environment here that's stirred up and rich, and it doesn't matter what someone's going through or gone through, but they can actually encounter Jesus as he really is, free from all the things that the church has made it over the years, and just make it pure and powerful and filled with boldness and enveloped in love? Can we do that in this room? Can we do that in our homes across Los Angeles where they're enfolded into a community of extreme hospitality where grace is actually what they are met with? They're not met with gossip. They're not met with the, the, the themes that we see in Los Angeles, the shallowness, the comparison. They're met with the true love of the Father. And so the Lord is stirring this in the house. And he's stirring it in each one of our lives. And today, I really believe he is setting us free to be able to move forward 
And what we're preaching on today is breaking cycles of shame and the power of testimony. Breaking cycles of shame and the power of testimony. So would you guys open with me to John chapter 4? You know, uh, my mom and I, she's my mother, but we are also revival buddies. <laughs> and since I was, you know, 8, 9, 10, 11 years old, we would, I grew up in North Carolina, and uh, we would go in the back roads of North Carolina, barbecue country, trying to, I don't know, trying to find what God was doing in the land. And um, man, we would go Saturday, sometimes Saturdays. I mean, I'm like 12 years old. And we would get there early in the morning and be there late at night, just hungry, hungry for the Lord. Uh, there was, this, this dates us a little bit, but there was this band that would play called Jam for the Lamb. <laughs> really cool. Jam for the Lamb. And, uh, you know, that will be one of our bands one day here at Evergreen. You know, maybe we'll have, like, ska music that we... Uh, <laughs> I know some of you are longing for some Christian ska. Jin, yes! <laughs> really? All right. Just let the bowls of intercession tip over. And so um, I just want to take a moment and honor my mom because, you know, this is direct fruit of your own hunger for the Lord and my dad's own hunger for the Lord. And seeing both of your kids pastor churches in this wild land of LA and trying to, li trying to live this uncompromised, holy fire kind of lifestyle and spread that wildfire in every part of our lives. And um, my mom, you know, we, we were in a little more conservative church growing up and uh, in her hunger, she opened up a Dutch sheets book and got baptized with the Holy Spirit. Just on the bed. It wasn't she, Dutch sheets, it was somebody else. She's, but, but use your microphone. Good. I know, but it's... <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, is it on? I don't think it's on. Shonda's mic. Shonda's mic. No, you're good. It will come on. Hello? It will come on. One day. One day. It wasn't Dutch sheets, but it was somebody. It was a book. And I literally was alone in my room on my knees reading this book, doing what it said. Open your mouth wide. Ask the Holy Spirit to fill it out. Just, just let words come out. And lo and behold, the Holy Spirit took over. It was amazing. It was really awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so I just wanted my mom to share a, a quick snippet of her testimony. It's so powerful. And I think it gives you guys... Um, uh, a glimpse of her heart. So would you share your testimony? Yeah, so um, just briefly, about a year and a half ago, I think I shared the, the longer version here at Evergreen, so I'm just gonna do a very nutshell version. I did grow up in a, in a Christian home. My dad was a Methodist minister, but he had, he had fallen into some things um, when I was about five or six years old uh, that, that caused deep um, shame in his life. And... Uh, that affected me a lot, and I'll talk more about that later. But um, I, it was kind of, I think, to compensate for that, he brought in some mixture. Like what, what you tend to do because of guilt and shame, you tend to want to change the Word of God a little bit and make it fit your life rather than you fitting that life that God has ordained. Anybody relate to that? 
We're going to be talking about that today. God doesn't want that mixture because that brings in, opens other doors to other influences. So, um, so I grew up, always believed in Jesus and God and always believed that, um, but there was a lot of mixture and I believed all roads led to Rome. That was kind of, kind of a byword in our family. That doesn't help anyone, by the way. That does not help. You don't find Jesus when you think all roads lead to him. You don't honor him as the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Savior of the world, if you think there are other roads. So, you know, that isn't helpful. But, but people do it because they think it's being helpful. So, anyway, I, I got married young. Um, my first husband left me. He was confused in many ways and broke my heart because I thought it was forever. Um, so then I, uh, and then I found out some things about my dad about that same time. And so I was like wrecked in my early 20s and throughout my mid-20s. I just was looking for, for something to tell me I was okay. And unfortunately, I, I dated a lot of guys and looking for love in all the wrong places kind of thing. And by the time I, then I met Sveta, which was awesome, and God had an encounter. He said, I've given Sveta to you as a gift. I've seen your heartache and your pain, and I've, grace, pure grace, I've given him to you as a gift. And what a gift he has been over the many years, 42 years of marriage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Redemption, grace. So we got married, and um, I was pregnant when we got married with our first son, Christian. And when I had him, my love for him was so great. And I was in this incredible pit of despair, like I'd fallen down a well and couldn't get out. And it was like the worst hell you could be in. And all I could think of is that if Chris grew up and I raised him, I didn't know how to not pass on this black pit of complete despair of hell. And so this thought was introduced, I'm sure it had to be from the enemy, it would never be from God, that if I just took my life maybe God would bring to Sveta a nice young woman who didn't have a black pit, and maybe Christian, my first son, would have a chance. That was what I was thinking. That's so twisted, you guys. That's never God, yeah. ever. So, but I didn't know that, and I thought it was, and I'm sitting there thinking how to take my life. In I, I was in Chicago, in Iowa. My mom was praying for me with a friend, just sensing. I didn't tell her anything, but sensing something wasn't right, praying for me from there. And I had an encounter with God. I didn't see him or hear him with my ears, but I, in my spirit, it was as real as if I'd seen and heard him with my ears. He invaded that apartment, and he, he just spoke to me and he said, Kathy, you have been seeking for so long. You've read all, every self-help book. You've gone to this counselor for five years and you're worse than when you started. And you know, you're more hopeless than you were when you started because now you've tried everything and you still haven't gotten out of this black pit. You haven't found the answer, the hope. And he said, but Kathy, what's wrong with you is at the core of your being. And he said, I made you. I'm God. I made you, and I know everything about you. So it's like God is great, and God is good. So he was saying, and I love you, and I want to help you. I'm the only one who can, and I want to. 
And I knew that I knew that I knew that that was true. And I had read, as I said, every, every self-help book. I had been to a counselor for five years. I'd done everything I knew to do. And I was worse because I had not once factored in God. So just to kind of tie up the loose ends, we moved to North Carolina. I was now seeking him in a very, you know, demonstrative way. And I was looking for, excuse me, for him, found a little heart magnet. If you, you know, to seek me, look with your whole heart. I was doing that. And this, this one woman, I, I had gone to church uh, the night before and I, and I felt the message was just for me and I had a, a mental image of straddling a fence. One leg was here, one leg was here and God said, Kathy, you can't straddle the fence. And I knew it had to do with my dad because I, I love my dad, he's in heaven now, but I, I loved him so much and I didn't want his disapproval because I knew I would get it immediately. And so I had to make a decision between pleasing my dad and pleasing my dad. <laughs> and I chose the father. And I put both legs over. And long story short, I, a few days later, I gave my, my whole life to the Lord. I saw the ball had been in my court the whole time. And I didn't know it. Because I had believed in Jesus, you see. I'd had head knowledge. I believed in God. I believed in Jesus. I believed he was the son of God. And when this woman witnessing to me said... You know, there's a verse that says, even the demons believed and trembled. My jaw must have gone to the floor. It was like a light bulb came on and I realized, oh my gosh, they knew he was, a, that isn't it. It's something more. And I saw in that moment, it was an exchange. I needed to return that ball, which is my life. I needed to say, yes, I give you my whole life and I receive your whole life in exchange, the greatest exchange there ever could be. And that's for us, that's why he came. So I did that and, and everything changed. You know, that was the beginning of, of so much. So. And you know, my mom's story really is this story of breaking cycles of shame and the power of testimony. I mean, you're hearing it right now. I'm like, we could end this service. That was awesome, three minutes of testimony. And it's like, because the power of the Spirit is released and, and hits yeah. our hearts as we see the grace of Jesus yeah. capture a heart. Yeah. And so if, if, if you're longing to be someone where the grace of Jesus captures your heart again, if you wanna be one that returns to first love, if you wanna be one like her and you've been straddling a fence, but you know that you're at a crossroads, you know that you don't wanna be lukewarm, you know that you actually wanna be ignited with passion again, this passage that we're opening up to, John chapter four, is a passage of ignition. This is a passage of crossroads, a passage of extreme grace of Jesus realized in lives. So go ahead and open up to John chapter four, also, if there's someone from Evergreen that could um, turn the, the lights a little brighter so the people can read scripture. So someone can grab that. It will come shortly. All right. Would you guys open with me to John chapter four? This is the story of the woman at the well. Um, I want to start off giving a little bit of context. If you can hang with us, turn on your nerd glasses for a moment because we want to hit a little bit of history, a little context, and a little bit of geography. Sound good? Um, 
Mom, what, what is the, the timeline and setting of this story? Would you go yeah. ahead and open it? So um, we happen to be studying this in our Friday night uh, church. And so um, this was kind of familiar to us. We're going right through John, studying, doing these Bible study techniques. So in chapter three, um, a religious leader named Nicodemus, you may have heard that. He's the original Nick at night, if anybody knows Nick. <laughs> anyway, he, I know. She's got the jokes. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a million of them. Anyway, <laughs> he, um, he did come to Jesus at night. He had questions. He was seeking. Um, and so we don't know, however, at, at this point, how he responds, because you can't really tell. But at the end of that chapter, we see that John the Baptist, so he kind of goes semi-chronologically. John, the, the Gospel of John isn't fully chronologically done, but I think at this point, it, it kind of is, up to these chapters. And so at the end of chapter three, John the Baptist is still alive. He hasn't been beheaded yet, um, and he's still baptizing in the river Jordan. And now Jesus's disciples are also baptizing a little ways away on the other side of the Jordan um, with Jesus. He's there doing the baptizing, but he's there. So John's disciples are hearing about this because Jesus is drawing a greater and greater crowd. And John's disciples are concerned about this and bringing that up with, with John saying, what what's the deal? And John exalts Jesus again. He's his cousin, but he understands. Remember, he's the one that in the second chapter or first chapter, he's saying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He recognizes who Jesus is, and he's exalting him, and he realizes who he is. So there's no, condom, there's no um, competition. Do you know when you realize who you are and what you're called to do and be, when you know your destiny, you will not feel competitive with anybody else because no one is designed and born to do what you are. And John knew that. Jesus knew that. So they were not competitive. And John said, so my job is now diminishing, and I must diminish, and he must grow greater. Right? So that's the end of the last chapter. Now, what's happening is Jesus is realizing that the religious leaders are also aware that Jesus is getting more and more popular, gathering more and more people. They're already concerned about John. Now Jesus is even doing more. So it's stirring up a hornet's nest. Jesus is aware and he decides to go up where it's safe in Galilee. He's down in Judea, which is the southern part of Israel. He has to go through Samaria to get to Galilee. Now, we actually have a, a nice graphic of Israel. There it is. Look at that. So Jerusalem is to the south in Judea. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, we're going to talk about this in a moment. There's a direct crossroads that goes right through Shechem. And that's the middle dot there. And he's on his way to Galilee. And so he stirred up the hornet's nest in Jerusalem, and he's, he's going north. And a lot of individuals uh, in the Jewish community would take the long way around Shechem, which is in the heart of Samaria. Especially leaders, because if they ran into a Samaritan, they would be unclean. That's right. And they so um, for the sake of time, let's hit on uh, the Samaritans and why they were, um, they were wanting so much separation from the Jewish community and the Samaritans. Well, it, it, it's because Jacob was the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. If you remember that, he had 12 sons. They became the 12 tribes. Those 12 tribes got divided in 722 BC. 
uh, in 930 BC, sorry, but the but the, the the northern tribe, which or the northern kingdom, I'm trying to say it too fast. The northern kingdom is called Israel. The southern kingdom is called Judah. So the northern kingdom got captured by the Assyrians, defeated by the Assyrians in 722 BC. And what happened is mixture came in because the Assyrians intermarried with the um, you know, the northern kingdom of Jews, um, which were all brothers at one time. They were all one kingdom at one time, one family. Now they're divided. And now this bunch of brothers are considered defiled. They're considered unclean because there's mixture. <clears throat> they're not allowed to worship in Jerusalem anymore. So they have uh, these mountains there in between, Mount Gerizim, Mount Abal, and they start worshiping on Mount Gerizim uh, as their place of worship. And If yeah. I can give the Cliff Notes version for you all, um, that central part of Israel was where basically the, the cousins that were defiled, they were like the defiled cousins, were the Samaritans that lived in the middle. But the pure Jews lived closer to Jerusalem or, or up in Galilee. And so they would travel around because they did not want to be mixing with these defiled cousins. You guys getting the point? So this was, this was dramatic that, that Jesus is like, hey, followers, we're going to go straight through. We're going to go straight through. And that's where we find the story in John chapter 4. Right. Now, this... This is the, the greatest crossroads in the region. It literally is the, the, the biggest highway north-south, the biggest highway east-west. We, we could look at that and put your, 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 cheesy, uh, your cheesy Jesus Sunday school humor into play and be like, we are at a crossroads. Jesus loves a good crossroads. And, but the point is, this was a crossroads. This was one of the biggest crossroads in Jewish history, actually. And I love that Jesus shows up here to reveal extreme grace because it is at the cross that extreme grace is demonstrated. And it is here at a crossroads, the greatest crossroads in the region where grace is demonstrated. Throughout Jewish history, we see time and time again, we're just gonna knock through some bullet points of Jewish history where this is demonstrated as the biggest crossroads. Moses read the law at these crossroads. Um, Joshua, you want to tell us about Joshua for a moment here? Uh, yeah, but I'll back up. In Genesis, Genesis 12, which is a huge uh, change in scripture that happens, that's where um, Abram is called by God. And that call that he received, we are all living because of that decision at that crossroads to obey God. And he was called to leave behind his father and his family and his past and go to a land I'm going to show you. And, um, yep. and so at this crossroads, Jacob had to leave some things behind. He left his idols behind yep. here. Yep. Uh, it's where Jacob's well was dug, which we yep. see here in the scriptures. Yeah. And then Joshua, as you were saying, so when, when Joshua uh, led the people into the promised land, they rededicated themselves, made a covenant with God right there at Shechem between Mount Gerizim, Mount Abel. Um, and then at the end of his life, he gathered the people again to that same place. And that's when that famous speech, when he says, choose ye this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. A great crossroads of decision. We could probably hit this for another, another little while, but basically what we want to get across is that 
Jesus shows up once again at one of the greatest crossroads of Jewish history because he's demonstrating once again a crossroads of law and grace. And so um, that's where we're at here in John chapter 4. A few things to understand about the the Jews and Samaritans did not interact. And here we have um, verse 3 where Jesus left Judea, Judea, departed for Galilee. He's passing through Samaria. He came to a, a town called Sychar, and it's near the Which field. Which is Shechem. Shechem. The field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, verse 6. So Jesus, wearied, because he's human, fully God, fully man, he's wearied from his journey and was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Okay, his disciples had also gone into town because they were hungry. And so here we have Jesus at Jacob's well, and he um, is there at the sixth hour. The sixth hour is important because this would have been noonday. In the, in the noonday hot sun, this was not the time that the ladies were getting their water. All the ladies would probably go early in the morning or late at night, just like climate is here. But in the middle of the day, and you're a woman showing up at a well, it's because you got something to hide. You don't want all the other hens clucking. You, you, got, you got something to hide. There's a little bit of shame. The shame under the noonday sun brought her to the well. And so we have verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Verse 9. The Samaritan woman said, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Okay, what's happening here? Yeah, so Jesus is starting to unveil more and more who he really is and what he has come to do. This is, by the way, the longest recorded conversation in the whole New Testament. And it's with a woman who's Samaritan who's living in sin. And you wouldn't, as a Jew, talk to any of those. Someone in sin, a woman, or a Samaritan. No, exactly. So... (laughs) Three strikes and she's out. So she is in such need, such thirst. And so he's speaking to her thirst. He's referring to this living water. If you just go to a couple chapters later in John 7, we have the last greatest day of the feast. That was actually Friday night. We, we met Friday night with our group. And that... The, the end of the Feast the of fe- Tabernacles. Sorry, the Feast of Tabernacles. We just, they just ended. And the great day was just this last Friday. And on that day, it's called Hoshana Rabbah, which means the great Savior. That's the focus of that whole thing, of, especially that day. So the, the high priest goes down and gathers water in this golden vessel from the lowest point in Jerusalem, the Siloam Pool, then ascends all the steps back up to the temple, pours the water out on the altar so that it flows down to represent the river of God flowing to the people, the river of the Holy Spirit. Jesus stands up at this point and he says, uh, let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. What he's speaking about is the salvation that he brings, that he has come for instead of law. Law leads us to the great teacher, Jesus. He's here with grace. It's the greatest shift in history ever. 
And he is bringing a whole new thing from outer works to an inward transformation where we leave the old on the cross and we become a brand new creature. And that's where we're full of living water, which represents the Holy Spirit. That's right. And, and Jesus is also demonstrating, you know, they would do this act during the festival, the pouring out of the water. They would read from Isaiah 12. And I love how Jesus brings the fulfillment because he is the Messiah. He knows the scriptures and he knows he is the fulfillment of these prophetic words. And he's taking what is physical and makes it a matter of the spirit. He always takes what's a matter of the law or physical and turns it to matters of the heart. And once again, he says, I am the living water poured out. That verse, by the way, he's referring to is, with joy, you will draw water from the well of salvation. And so remember what his name that we've just been singing means. Yeshua means salvation. Verse 11, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is very deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself and, and did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. He's talking about the water from the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And so he preaches and he draws her by the spirit to the things of the spirit. Now the story switches because Jesus is now intent on going after the areas of her life that are hidden in shame. And he says in verse 16, go call your husband and come here. He is setting her up to face her shame. Verse 17, the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband for you have five, you've had five husbands and the one you are now with is not your husband. What you've said is true. And so by a, a word of knowledge, Jesus is demonstrating that he is connected to the spirit and says, I see you. I know you. I know what you're going through. I know that you've had five husbands and that you're living immorally right now. And I'm still calling you. Well, I, I want to just interject there that I, I think how we hear that is so important. He didn't come to condemn the world, yeah. right? He came to set us free, to be our savior. Our savior, you, sin is the thing that imprisons us. Well, often we don't realize it, but that's the enemy. That's the thing that, yeah. that completely is that weight that you're talking about. It imprisons us, it weighs us down, it keeps us from the things of God. And so when he puts his finger on something, it is with such love. And he knows how each person can, you know, what they, how they need to be talked to. He knows everything about you. And he knows how to reveal that to you. And you have a choice, it's a crossroads at that moment. Will you respond and come toward him? Will you let him take that and, and, and transform you further inside? Or will you, will you put up a wall and, you know, keep him at a distance? And he's giving her an opportunity to deal with the real thirst that is within her. He's giving her this decision yeah. that she gets to make. Right. And so um, she, she kind of says, 
Sir, I perceive you are a prophet because he's telling her. She's saying you're right. You're right. You're right. Um, verse 23. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So I want to, can I interject right sure. there? So a couple of verses back when she, after she says, I perceive you're a, po- a prophet, then she starts to talk about our fathers versus you Jews. And what I see here is she's bringing up the even deeper shame and deeper issue of the division among the family. This shame that the Samaritans feel because of the Jews looking down on them as lepers, as unclean, as rejects now from the family. God came for the lost sheep of Israel first, and they are the lost sheep of Israel. That was Samaria. And he loves them. We are dealing with the same crossroads right now. We have two other brothers, I, you know, Ishmael and Isaac, that are fighting, have been fighting since the beginning. And only the cross, only Jesus can bring the reconciliation between brothers, between family, and create the one new man that Ephesians talks about. That's God's kingdom, family. Now that's right. And so here we are in verse 23, where, where Jesus is speaking, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. What he is doing is moving from all her questions of how to externally, how to externally worship. Where must I worship? Where must I do this? And he's saying, I'm moving it into matters of the heart. I'm moving it to areas of the spirit. It's not external, it's internal. And this is the biggest change of all that takes place from outer works towards inward transformation. Exactly. So he's saying it's not gonna be the temple in Jerusalem or the temple you've built in Mount Gerizim because you are going to become the temple. The Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God himself, is going to dwell within you the moment you receive what I am offering, this living water. And as he's speaking, she's, she's, she's having that stirring by the Spirit within her. And it says in verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is the, called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And pay attention to this, verse 26, Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. He says, I am the Messiah. And she gets it. She gets the spark of light. She gets that, that yeah. in this moment, there's a faith that is birthed within her, yes. ignited, and that this is potentially her salvation experience. Verse 27, just then the disciples came back. They were marveling that he was talking to this woman. No one said, uh, but no one said, who do you seek or why are you talking to her? <laughs> and see, uh, there was this, they could see the change that took place within this woman. Mm-hmm. And they had never seen this kind of light that was shining from someone before. And so here's what happens when someone is ignited in faith, they find their salvation experience. It says in verse 28 that she left her water jar behind and she went into the village and you couldn't get her to shut up because she was so excited (laughs) about that she had just met. Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the Messiah? And she starts telling her testimony to every person she could find. She says, look at this man that told me everything I've ever done. Did he really tell her everything she'd ever done? Maybe they had a bit of a longer conversation, but I think it was the work of the spirit where she felt known. Yeah. She felt known deeper than than deep. 
that this man knew me. This, and this man knows you. He's, he's your creator. And is not rejecting. Is not rejecting. And so she goes, she goes in, and, and um, I love this because it says in verse 39, many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of her testimony. There was a belief that was ignited just from her testimony. And can I say, women were not allowed to give testimony at that time. Their testimony was worthless, no one would take heed, especially a Samaritan, especially a woman in sin. And it tells us in verse 40 that he stayed there for two more days. And then more and more individuals started believing him because they heard him. I love that because there's the power of the testimony that yes. comes from a life that's changed. And the power of God is ignited. But ultimately, what we want is for people to engage with the living water himself. And many more believed. And I love in verse 24, they said to this woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. It's no longer just because of your testimony. For we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. One of the greatest statements in all of scripture. <laughs> it's right there. I love that. So there's okay. many things that we could pull from this passage. Um, pastorally, I want to shift us a, a little bit. Um, we're going to probably go till a, a little bit later. Um, but I want us to kind of focus on two things. I want us to, to focus on freedom from shame, and I want us to focus on the power of the testimony. And so I want to, I want to just ask, my mom's counseled individuals for over 30 years in our home for free. I mean, that alone is a lot of crown, a lot of gems in your crown, Bless you in Jesus' name. And um, seeing people discipled into freedom. And so I just want to ask you, what does shame do to us? Oh, you know, I, th I hate shame the most um, because the devil uses that to literally twist the soul. I think there, if you look at Adam and Eve, when shame came in, they hid, they covered themselves, um, they blamed, <laughs> you know, and so there can be, it's like this flip-flop thing where you um, either feel, you know, you just want to become nothing because you feel like you're nothing and you, you don't want to speak, you don't want to share, or you put on a bravado with this mask because you want to prove that you are okay, you know, and it just, you, you can't be real because you're constantly putting all this energy into, into hiding, behind something or someone else, in a sense. And, you, and you, how can you feel known? Because you're hiding these things. And so you don't feel known by God, you don't feel known by people, you don't feel loved, because you haven't let them know you. And so it is such a stealer and such a horrible tormentor. And I saw it in my dad. And, you know, when he went to um, a counselor early on, I heard the story. I was young. I didn't know it at the time. But he told me later that he, he humbled himself and he went for counseling. But the counselor just laid law and religion on him. It's like, just stop it and just don't do it anymore. Do you know that the Bible says that the law stirs up sin? The law was given so that we would be aware of our sin. It never was designed to take our sin from us. It only was to show us and make sin more sinful. And so one of the reasons that I did start counseling is because I know people are at crossroads all the time in their lives. And what do they need? Not religion and law. They don't need to be beat up. They're already beat up. 
They need the medicine of the gospel. They need the grace and love of God that covers over a multitude of sins. I'm not saying to water down truth. Jesus came full of grace and truth. I really believe grace isn't really grace without truth, and truth isn't really truth without grace. They are so intertwined. And so, um, yeah, what was I going? Oh, what shame does. Yeah, so shame steals, shame cripples us, and it keeps us from maturing because we're hiding even from God. Yeah, yeah this is some of my ideas. No, that's awesome. And then um, let's start to talk about like ways, um, keys to get out of shame and into freedom. Yeah, you know, we were just talking to our daughter, your sister-in-law, my daughter-in-law, Susanna, and she was quoting someone, I forget who she was quoting. Brene Brown. Brene Brown, who said, um, vulnerability is the antidote to shame. In other words, being real. Because shame causes you to not be real. It's hiding. That's what it is in essence, right? So to be vulnerable, to be humble and vulnerable, sharing who you really are with someone. I'm not saying casting your pearls before swine. In other words, I'm not saying just share with anybody. Because that's what my dad did, and it, it, he shut down forever. He never went back to another counselor. So you've got to ask God, who should I share this with? The Bible says to share with one another. Confess your sins to one another, and, and you'll, you'll be healed of all kinds, you know, whether it's physical, mental, spiritual, however. Um, so we are to share, but ask the Lord who to share with. Become First share with God. That's what David did. David took all his stuff to God. He was so honest with God. Be brutally honest with God. Tell him everything. He already knows and he loves you. And then ask who to share with. That, will, that starts to break it right there. Truth starts to break the lies of shame. Yeah, and the antidote for shame is humility and vulnerability. Um, Jesus did that with the woman yeah. at the well. And he, entered, he, he brought her into that experience. He helped her into that area like I see I know and I'm here yeah, with you and yeah, for you exactly also for me when I became a Christian knowing what the word of God says about how God sees you I remember hearing right away oh God takes your sin and he separates it as far from himself as the east is from the west and he chooses to remember it no more Wow, I thought, that's incredible. So if I bring it up to him, he's going to say, what are you talking about, Kathy? Right? He's chosen to forget it. That's so beautiful. And um, yeah, so there are many scriptures like that. And then if we, if we sin later, let's say we've been walking with the Lord for a while now, we can get prideful in that and start to put walls up again because we feel like, well, I shouldn't be sinning now. Now I, I, can't, I can't share that with anyone. Well, he says, if, if you will confess your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We have an advocate with the Father. We have the blood of Jesus that we can stand on if we'll confess, if we'll repent. Remember, repenting is turning from it. When she left her water jar, like you were talking about, Tommy, that's a picture of repentance. When, when Abram left his old life behind and followed what the Lord God had called him to, that's a picture of repentance. So, yeah. That's so good. We were talking about how there's a stat that the, the Western church um, if you're, you're talking settings like this, are usually about two-thirds women. Mm -hmm. 
That means that only a third are men. And as I've done more and more ministry, I actually believe that the reason that so few men are attending church is because they have so much sexual shame. And I believe that they they don't uh, fully know how to or want to confront it. And so they just retreat from these relationships, from church community, from being in the presence of God because they're, they're hiding under their shame. I'm not saying that women don't have their own ways. I just believe that this is a, a common way that men right. retreat and isolate. Right. right. I, I actually, I remember counseling a, a man who was, he was so seeking hard after God that he was so willing to face anything. And Sveta would sit in, of course, uh, anytime I counsel a man, I would have Sveta there. And um, he would deal head on with these issues, these sexual sin issues, so that we could get to the core of it. We could get to the lies. We could get to the shame. We could get to that stuff and ferret it out and give it to Jesus and then receive the exchange that Jesus had for him. And that man is thriving today. He is doing so great. Praise God for his courage, you guys, for that humility. God always honors that kind of courage and humility and vulnerability. Always, always. You can count on it. And I think that part of, um, you know, we were were talking to a little bit like the Catholics like kind of have it right with confession (laughs) because it does say like confess your sins to one another. And uh, there's, a, there's a part of that vulnerability that, that we as uh, evangelicals sometimes retreat from, right? But there actually is this, this opening up, bringing things into the light that is so healthy and good. And it's when we're doing that, we, we do it with those around us. We do it with the, lo- the Lord first and foremost. And we're saying, you're right. This is sinful. This is shameful. And I receive your forgiveness. We have to take that posture of humility and vulnerability before God and before those that, that he's entrusted a relationship with and let yeah. that light of God come and bring that healing. That's so good, Tommy. And the forgiveness, we have to ask God for forgiveness, receive his forgiveness, but we also have to forgive ourselves, you guys. That is often the place where people, they do all the other, but it's like, oh, I have to forgive myself. You guys, that is so important. The thing is, if you don't, you're playing God. You're playing judge. Who are you to play judge? Who am I to play judge? You know, only God gets to say that. And he says, if he says you're forgiven when you've repented, then you've got to receive his word. Take it in and forgive yourself. Forgive those who have harmed you in any way. And then release God from anything. He can't ever sin. We know that. But we tend to hold him hostage sometimes and blame him for things. And we've got to face those things and break those as well. And I think the greatest key to seeing victory in an area of shame is to remain and abide with fellowship with God. Amen. If I could give any, any tool, any, any propelling in your life, a purposing in your life, it's to abide and remain in relationship with God. Did you know that you could be a pastor preaching a message from scripture every week Mm -hmm. and be living in sin, Mm -hmm. but you can't do that if you are remaining in fellowship with God. Right. Right. You could be a missionary on the field. You could be someone that is seeing the sick healed, the lame walk, mm-hmm. and be living in sin because you're doing it out of form and function. Yeah. You're doing it out of the anointing, but you're not doing it out of relationship with God. 
And so that there's a correction that the Lord's bringing to bring us into rich relationship and fellowship with him again. Because we cannot be those people that are crippled in areas of sin and shame. We got to have power and character married together in our lives. And he's awakening this within us. And it's going to be through rich relationship, abiding and fellowship with the Lord himself. Uh, when you're in fellowship, the small things don't add up anymore. I was talking with um, a girl this week, actually, that nine months ago, she was living in all sorts of, like, almost as, as bad as you can imagine. Like, that, that's where she was at nine months ago, living in L.A., just doing all the stuff. Uh, suicidal, tried to take her life many times, overdosing many times. And the Lord took her from that place of that pit and brought her into eternal life with the eternal one. And right now she is so on fire for the Lord in nine months that she's like, I can't even let the little sins stay. I can't even let the little compromises stay. I can't even let a little mixture stay. Because this is what happens when you're in rich fellowship with the Lord. You don't want to let the little foxes stay. You want to live pure and let the dross rise to the surface and let him skim it off because the fire and passion of Jesus is alive in you. And I, I believe that like... Some of us have lived in that place of lukewarm and compromise, and the Lord is bringing us again to a crossroads. And he's saying, do you want to be one that lets me take the dross off the surface and let you be a pure source again? Do you want to be one that is erupting with passion again? Because when you, get, when you let the little things stay, you can't, you can't actually remain in that, that, that intimate place with him. And it's robbing you of your destiny. And so the Lord is drawing us in. Come into relationship again. Let me show you. Let me show you by my spirit the areas that I want to deal with. I know in my life, like uh, time and time again, the Lord has shown me areas. I'll be in worship and I'll be trying to encounter the Lord. And he shows me this vision where I have something on the altar. (laughs) He says, this thing, that thing needs to be given to me. You You have made that a shrine in your life. And I'm like, I'm trying to worship, uh, okay, that area. And I just deal with it. Repentance. I, I, I place it on the altar before him and say, take it, Lord. Take it. It's not worth it. And the freedom that comes, the freedom that comes, it, you can't even compare to what that thing is, that little shrine that you've made in your life, thinking it's something that you deserve to hang on to. It's not even worth it in comparison of being free and being pure. Like there's nothing that compares to that kind of freedom. When you're in fellowship with God, the small things don't add up. So what he's, you can see the joy, the freedom and joy go together. And that's what this woman had. Don't you know that when she went into that village, that joy was contagious. They could say, what happened to her? And they, it, you know, just her countenance was a witness. So, yeah. And that's what I want to land with today. I know we're going a little over time. The power of testimony. I just want to hear, uh, hit a few bullet points there. That she was compelled to share. Yeah. Her sharing ignited something in hearts of men and women within that town. And I think there's something about our testimony, your unique testimony that yeah. the Lord wants to actually realize that you have something to say. And when it's filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, watch Watch what Jesus does as you step in and take a risk and start to share what he's done. Watch the softness of hearts that takes place as you step out and just share what Jesus has done in, in your own life. 
It's a, it's a sparking of salvation that took place then, and it's still happening today. And I wanted my mom to actually share um, about one of her best friends at the time years ago um, and just share a moment about the power of testimony. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> literally one week to the day after I became a Christian, um, I had a really good friend up in Canada. I was down in North Carolina. She was in Toronto. And she called me. I knew she had cancer. She'd been struggling with it for a few years. And she said, Kathy, now I'm, I'm dying. And so if you want to see me again, you need to come quickly. So I did. I went right up there. And I was there literally one week to the day after becoming a new believer. And I was only there three or four days. And when I arrived, um, I'm sure I was excited about my new life. And, but she said, I don't want to hear anything about it, Kathy. I am in the worst hell I could ever be in. I don't want to hear about God. I said, okay, I get it. I understand. So can I, can I just share what happened to me? And she said, well, yeah, you can do that. So it's all I did. I just shared what happened to me. And she started to soften and soften. And a little while later, I said, well, can I, can I just pray for you? Yeah, you can do that. So I prayed for her. And she told me afterwards, you know, when you were praying, it was like it wasn't you praying. So she's starting to feel the Holy Spirit. I had a song with me about the woman at the well called He Felt the Pain, He Felt My Pain. And she had a piano in, downstairs and so she was able to come down with me and I was able to play and sing that song for her. And she is melting more and more and she was so moved and touched. And then this one day she starts praying. Remember this is all within three or four days. This is a you know, very short period of time. God was moving her along quickly. And and she, um, she prays, and it's very self-centered. It's all about her, to, you know, which is fine. It's a process. So then a little while later, maybe the next day, she prays again, and this time, and I'm sitting next to her in her bed, and she's praying, and it's all about God. It's all about what she wants to do for him when she dies. I just want to serve you, God, and I just pray I can serve. It was so beautiful, and it was like this little bell went off in my head, and the Lord spoke to me, and he said, Okay, Kathy, you've brought her to me. I'll take it from here. Yes. <laughs> it's so beautiful. So I'll give you the follow-up. So she called me probably a week or two later, and she said, Kathy, I have to share something with you. She said, um, a couple days ago, I was, I was going to take my life. I had all the meds out to overdose. I was ready to do it, and at the very last moment, I decided not to. And she said the next day, her whole family, that had had a lot of divisions in it, a lot of rifts, a lot of struggles, they all came to visit her. And she said, Kathy, it was the most beautiful day of my entire life. There was so much love and reconciliation in my family. It was so beautiful. I'm so glad I didn't take my life. And I said, see, Wendy, you can trust the Lord, his timing, his ways. So I assigned this friend of hers to carry the torch and to keep praying with her. The friend wasn't even a Christian, but she loved Wendy, and she was so, she was so sweet. She, she took on that, that job. She did it faithfully. So sweet. I'm sure she is a Christian now, but... She, so she carried that on, and she did call me after Wendy passed, and she said, Kathy, I just have to tell you, it was the most beautiful thing. She was supposed to die this, you know, according to doctors, medically, this awful death. She said, we just had finished praying, 
And she closed her eyes and went to be with Jesus. God took it from there. All I did was bring her to him. Come and see, could this be the Christ? Thank you, Jesus. Just as we end, this woman at the well, throughout um, Greek, his, Greek Orthodox history, Catholic history, we actually learn that her name is Fatini. And Fatini luminous becomes, one. means luminous one. She becomes a great saint. And she preaches the gospel um, so much so that the, the Romans, if, you, if you're familiar with Nero, um, he, he takes her and is, is beating her. They tried to kill her at many times and there was even some miracles that took place along that journey. They ended up beheading her, almost her whole family. They threw her down a well, I'm sure mocking at her testimony. Mm-hmm. And, and she ended, ended up being martyred for her faith, um, but is, is known as... as um, you know, one of the saints, so to speak, and, of tradition. And equal to or even surpassing the apostles, Peter, James, John, and Fotini, mm-hmm. until the 14th century. Mm-hmm. And then she became kind of the lost apostle. Yeah. <laughs> and so the Lord breathes on lives that are hungry yeah. for grace, that yes. are thirsty for water of Jesus, yes. that we come to a place of crossroads, of decision-making, and he says, yeah. do you want to drink? Yeah. Will you drink? And will you become a well? (laughs) So I want us to actually stand up together. Would you just get in a place of receiving before the Lord, connection before him? And even right now, Jesus, we've been, we've been speaking from scripture about how you met a woman where she wasn't even necessarily even looking for you, but you met her on a crossroads and let her come into a place of choosing life. So I pray that even today, God, there's some here that have never chosen you, that have never chosen the Messiah on the roads in their journey and that you're there waiting for them with open arms and want to be that living water in their lives. And there's some of us that have have known you for years and we've gone maybe a different direction, but you're waiting day after day for us to come to a place of decision making where we're saying, I'm ready to let go of the anchors. I'm ready to run with you. I'm ready to move forward with authority into the land of promise. So even right now where you're at, would you just give your simple, your simple yes to him at your crossroads? Say, Jesus, I want you. I want to drink deeply of the living water. I want to come back to my first love. I want to be a man or a woman of of testimony and of power and authority to tell the ends of the earth about your goodness, to let go of all the other shackles so that I can run forward with power, boldness, and grace. It's in your mighty name we pray. Amen.